This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. The Russian invasion of the Ukraine has triggered the most massive violations of human rights we are living today. It has unleashed widespread deaths, destruction and displacement. That was UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemning the carnage unleashed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Details coming up also. Nigeria is counting votes from Saturday's elections for presidential and the legislature. French President Macron is unveiling a new economic and military strategy for Africa. And the World Anti-Money Laundering Organization has grey-listed Africa's two biggest economies. These stories and more on African News Tonight. First, our top story, voters in Nigeria are eagerly awaiting the announcement of the winner in the race to lead Africa's most populous country, where incumbent President Mohamedou Buhari is stepping down after two four-year terms. Nigeria's election commission announced the first results late Sunday from the country's closely watched presidential election. It said the ruling All Progressive Congress Party's candidate Bola Tim Tinubu secured the most votes in southwest Nigeria's Ekiti state. Results from 35 other states and Abuja were still pending after logistical problems and security concerns caused voting delays. Our VOA reporter, Peter Cloti, is monitoring the proceedings from Abuja and is on the line to brief us on the latest. Welcome to African News Tonight, Peter. Thank you very much, Yes, Thank you for having me. It is a very exciting time to be in Nigeria now, Peter. What, what is the latest? Well, the latest is that uh, a bunch of opposition um, uh, representatives at the coalition center decided to protest. So they walked out of the coalition tallying center in protest that the chairperson of the Electoral Commission, Professor Yakub Mahmoud, is not listening to them. They were demanding that the INEC respect its own laid-down procedures in terms of um, the polling unit uploading uh, the results at every polling station into a system known as the BVAS to ensure transparency and reduce manipulation of electoral results. They believe that reports of manipulation, intimidation, harassment, and violence could have arisen uh, because INEC did not use that system. On, on Saturday, when elections officially closed, there were reports that some of the beaver system were not used. People were using the manual system, which they said could be compromised, and which they said did not happen, and that is why they were protesting. Despite repeated protests, uh, protest. The INA chairman said that the coalition center is not the place for them to be arguing about the processes and that the processes should have happened in the field and that their candidates, their representatives at the various polling stations ascended their signature to the document authenticating that the documents of the results were authentic. So why come here to come to 
re-litigate the system when we should have done it way back there. So these are the back and forth happening. But so far, uh, the election results are being collated and announced on national TV across the country here in Abuja. Yeah, yes. So, Peter, we have an 18-party race with three frontrunners. Any comment on what you just told me? From them. Well, all of the three leading contestants are calling for calm. They're calling on INEC to expedite the release or correlated results of the election from all the polling stations across the country. Only a handful of states have come out, AKT, Oshun, uh, and then Quara State, uh, Lagos State will be coming to release its, re- its results soon, and, um, and then Kogi will be coming to release its results soon. But they are saying that after 48 hours uh, of voting, 48 hours after voting concluded, they believe the election results should have happened by now. A lot of people are expressing concern that this slow nature of the results happened four, eight, twelve years ago, which they said enabled some on scrupulous people to manipulate the election results. And some of them are even creating the impression that they were overvoting in setting uh, uh, states. And that is why they were contesting uh, and calling on INEC to only announce genuine results, insisting that the Beaver system for which uh, the INEC uh, team promised Nigerians will make the... Uh, the election transparent is not being followed. So they said this is just uh, another system to just uh, misrepresent the election results. So that is why they have been protesting. And Peter, uh, we actually talked about it uh, last week, the cash shortage we were talking about. Uh, is said to have affected transportation, not only for voters, but also for election workers and police officers providing security. And the challenge is also likely resulted in low voter turnout in, uh, said Yiga, Yiga Africa, the country's largest election monitoring body. Uh, c- can you comment on that? Indeed, um, what Yaga said uh, was backed by NDI, IAI joint poll observers who believe that the cash shortage uh, presented a very monumental challenge to a lot of Nigerians, including women, that they couldn't even uh, move from state to state. Usually people register at their home state, but because of the cash shortage, they couldn't go back home to register. So that is why a lot of people are saying, in spite of the huge enthusiasm of people wanting to vote, they couldn't go because they didn't have physical cash uh, to travel. And some of the uh, mobile money transactions were slowed significantly because that was not the depend- that was not what majority of people depended on. So indeed, II and NDI, uh, both U.S. organizations, backed the local poll observer stance that indeed the cash, the cash crunch affected the turnout of, elect, of elections on Saturday. VOA's Peter Cloti will be talking to you in our 1800 UTC hour. Thank you for your input. You're welcome. My name is Obianuju Salawe, Mrs. All right, so Mrs. Salawe, me. Um... As you just heard, VOA's Peter Cloti is in Abuja. He spoke with people in the city about the election process. Here's what one voter had to say. My name is Obianuju Salawe, Mrs. All right, so Mrs. Salawe, um, how has been the process for you today? Voting is officially over in this precinct. Yes. 
You know, it's been, um, how will I say, it's been okay. This polling unit, they started a little bit behind schedule, but when they started, everything went smoothly. And I personally stayed till the end because I wanted my vote to count. Did they count the vote in front of you? Yes, they did. They counted everything, verified everything in front of me, yes. Did everybody who was supposed to vote and who had come to vote able to vote in spite of the late start? Everybody was attended to. Everybody that came to vote that is eligible voted. You said this is your first time of voting. Yes. What motivated you to come out this time to vote? <laughs> this time around, I have to do something different. You know, before now, I didn't have a voter's card. It was so difficult to get one before now. But with the, thing, with the way things were going, I just had to push a little bit harder. And I got my card and I voted. For more on Nigeria's presidential election, please check out voaafrica.com and stay tuned to all your favorite VOA news programs for updates. U.S. First Lady Jill Biden has concluded her visit to Africa. Political analyst Pearl Matibi, who has been closely following the trip, recaps for me the First Lady's two-nation tour. So, as you may recall, she was invited by the First Lady, Madame Monica Gango, uh, the First Lady of the Republic of Namibia. So, on one thing that she did do while she was in Namibia is on February 24th, last Friday, uh, at the Namibia University of Science and Technology in Windhoek, Namibia, um, she delivered some remarks. Her speech was focused on democracy. She reiterated that, quote, you are the keepers of democracy. She called on the first generation of Namibians to pick up the mantle from their ancestors. And she said to, quote, to defend and protect and to grow their democracy. Uh, she wanted them, uh, she was calling and urging them to build on the foundation of the democracy. And she's lifting up those voices that have gone unheard particularly women and girls, people living on the margins of society, or those vulnerable to abuse. And, and how was she intending for them to do that? She told them, she said, quote, by exercising our right to disagree and dissent, speaking up when we see injustice, and supporting leaders who listen to our concerns, and becoming those leaders when we hear the call. Um, she referred to one young man that she met there uh, named Moses. He's a young man aged 17. And one word about what he, uh, that young boy uh, told her kind of had some rapport with her, and that word is potential, that there is potential in Namibia, that there is potential. This visit by the First Lady echoes what her husband had been saying at the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit. You know, this visit is one thing that the Biden-Harris administration has been reiterating they want to show that her husband, the President Joseph Biden, is following through on the promises that he made to African leaders, that he was going to be sending senior high-ranking officials from his administration to visit Namibia. And as we have seen, uh, Secretary Yellen had been there in January, uh, the permanent representative to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenford, had been, and now we've seen the First Lady. There's more to come, at least two more 
perhaps very high-ranking individuals from the executive branch, and that is going to be the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, as well as Vice President Kamala Harris, is also intended to come to Africa before the president himself visits the continent. Then she moves over to Kenya, and some areas of the Horn of Africa have endured five consecutive failed rainy seasons. And she actually uh, visited drought-affected communities in Kenya and appealed for wealthy nations to give more as the Horn of Africa suffers its driest conditions in decades. Could you expound on that? Uh, Absolutely. So in Kenya, uh, her counterpart, which is the First Lady of the Republic of Kenya, uh, Mrs. Rachel Ruto was 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 key to that to this visit, right? Uh, this was not the first lady's first visit to Kenya. In fact, this was her third visit to Kenya. Uh, one thing that she did say uh, in her speech, I just want to mention, um, is I'll just quote: She said, "We cannot be the only ones. We have to have our countries join us. Other countries join us in this global effort." to help these people of the region. Uh, and, and this was um, President uh, Dr. Biden speaking at a relief point in Kajiado, uh, which is a by county of the south of Nairobi. And so um, you are quite right uh, in what you have just mentioned there about you know, the very difficult situation right now in the Horn of Africa and East Africa, right? So um, she did visit... Um, this area because she wanted to appeal to these other wealthy countries that the United States cannot do it alone. That was political analyst Pearl Matibi under U.S. First Lady Jill Biden's visit to Africa. The M23 rebels in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo have captured the town of Saki, about 27 kilometers from the center of the city of Goma. The armed forces of the DRC, or the FARDC, has been hitting Saki with military jets. Reporter Jafar Al-Katanti in Goma says thousands of people are streaming into the city from Saki, and many were displaced earlier from other towns. Al-Katanti spoke with VOA's Kate Pound-Dawson. Since today morning, three attacked Luhonga, which is a neighborhood of the city of Saki. Saki, which is a city at... 27 kilometers out of Goma, and we can say this is the second time we're fighting very very close to the city of Goma. And here in Goma, we can hear some uh, explosion in the direction of Saki because FRDC employs uh, jet fighters and many batteries in order to stop the progressing of enemy. Now, there are reports of many, many people fleeing the fighting. What's the situation for the internally displaced people? What What are people seeing there in Goma? Now, in the national road from Packet to Goma, you, can, you can't walk because there are many IDPs, people coming from Sake to Goma. Sake were also welcomed some IDPs from other villages in Masisi. And those IDPs with population of Sake are all leaving the city in the direction of Goma. And these people have not any humanitarian help, no support of NGOs or from the governor. They just come in Goma and stay in some small camps as they can. They sometimes build house with just wood or 
some something they can, a plastic, but they don't have anything for their life. No food, no sanitation, no anything. Now, is there concern that Goma could be taken over by the M23, that the M23 could get into the city? The situation now, as the situation is, M23 is 20 kilometers north of Goma, and now they are 27 kilometers west of Goma. And as you know, in the south of Goma, it's the, the lake, and east of Goma is Rwanda. So now Goma is closed. Goma is isolated by M23. Even if they don't control it, we will consider Goma like a controlled city. That was journalist Jafar Al-Khatanti in the city of Goma in the eastern DRC. He also told VOA Skate Pandasan the M23 has captured the town of Rubaya, the location of the country's largest coltan mine. Coltan is used in many electronic devices. In addition, the fighting has grounded the United Nations humanitarian air into out of, in and out of Goma after one of its helicopters came under fire. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyus Wuhib in Washington. The World Anti-Money Laundering Organization has grey-listed Africa's two biggest economies, Nigeria and South Africa. The Paris-based Financial Action Task Force, the FATF, said both countries have done enough to prevent illicit financial flaws and terrorist financing. Financial experts warn the grey listing could be devastating to Nigeria's and South Africa's economies. Financial expert Bongan Malangu says being grey listed by the FATF indicates absence of the rule of law and therefore discourages investment. Darren Taylor reports. The FATF monitors governments to check that they are following basic principles of financial regulatory oversight. It said Nigeria and South Africa need to show a sustained increase in investigations and prosecutions of serious and complex money laundering. It added both had to enhance identification, seizure and confiscation of proceeds of economic crimes and to show more urgency in implementing strategies to counter terrorism financing. The FATF said the countries need to ensure the effective implementation of targeted financial sanctions and to identify individuals and entities suspected of funding terror. Last year, the U.S. government designated several South Africans as terrorists, some who were allegedly using front companies to fund Islamic State activities. Financial expert Bongani Mahlangu describes the implications of grey listing for South Africa as severe. There is a reduction or a decrease in capital flows coming to South Africa. So the integrity of the banking and financial system in South Africa gets undermined. And that makes life very difficult for our banks and financial systems to interact globally and even to some extent domestically as well. So you find that also... Mahlangu says potential investors in Nigeria and South Africa will now be subjected to intensive due diligence checks in international banking and finance and they'll loathe the added red tape and pressure.
the risk in their investments increases. So that means the cost of investment also increases. And then also you find that there is a Soviet credit downgrade. And we know that when there's a credit downgrade, it increases the cost of credit, more especially when you go into your foreign financial markets. So that's essentially... Mahlangu says Nigeria and South Africa will now pay higher rates when borrowing from organizations like the World Bank and international financial institutions. He says this could mean citizens being taxed more. Director General of South Africa's Treasury, Ismail Momoniat, describes the grey listing of both Nigeria and his country as unfair. The way that this process works, that for example, when you have economies that are actually improving their systems, it's a bit perverse to be grey listed. But that's how the system works. I think it's something that we do need to assess. He pointed out that President Cyril Ramaphosa has signed two laws to combat money laundering and terrorism financing. But economist Johan Els says the FATF clearly wants to see action and not words on paper. Those laws were only passed very late last year. So at the very last minute almost. And that didn't give the Financial Action Task Force the confidence to accept that those laws, even though they were passed, will be implemented correctly. So if we had been faster out of the starting blocks, things could have been different. Else is, however, confident that the South African government will do what's necessary to ensure it's not on the FATF grey list for very long. But other analysts aren't as confident, especially with regard to the organization's demand that financial crimes be investigated and prosecuted seriously. Many of those implicated are senior members of the governing African National Congress. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. French President Emmanuel Macron will unveil a new economic and military strategy for Africa today. The speech comes before he leaves Wednesday for a trip to several African countries and, as Paris has, withdrawn many troops fighting an Islamic insurgency in West Africa. The Associated Press says Macron will visit Gabon, Angola and the Republic of Congo. He will arrive in Congo Wednesday. He is expected to attend a major climate change conference in Gabon, focusing on the preservation of forests. In Angola, he is focused on improving links in the fields of energy, including oil and gas, agriculture and the food industry. Macron is also expected to outline changes that France will bring to its military deployments in the Sahel. It has withdrawn troops from Mali and Burkina Faso, which has moved closer to Russia, but maintains about 3,000 troops in Niger and Chad. The UN Humanitarian Agency, OCHA, says Sudan will need humanitarian aid for a population hit by drought, displacement, disease and hunger. The French news agency AFP says around 4 million children under the age of 5 and pregnant women and lacitating women are among the most in need of nutrition. About a third of the population, nearly 16 million people, need humanitarian services. The UN says widespread flooding last year affected 349,000 people, sparking displacement and a surge in disease, including malaria. 
Ocha says more than 30% of the population must walk more than an hour for medical help and nearly as long to fetch water. 45% of schools lack access to drinking water and over 70% lack hand-washing facilities. The COVID-19 pandemic and a cut in international aid to, to, due to the prolonged military takeover have worsened the situation. And with that, we wrap up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Al Santos, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.